Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about student experiences of university and I'm talking with Dr Kirsty Finn, who's a sociologist working at Manchester University in the UK. Now Kirsty's research focuses on higher education, but she doesn't look at teaching and learning, which is what most people in this area tend to focus on. Instead, Kirsty is interested in the student experience as students come in, through and out of university. Her work looks at how these experiences are differentiated in terms of gender, social class, age and stage. And perhaps most interestingly, how university study is increasingly entwined with economic imperatives in the world of work. So there's heaps to talk about here. And first off, I asked Kirsty, as a sociologist, what was it about higher education and the student experience that had particularly caught her attention? feel like I've become a higher education person by accident um so originally you know when I'm thinking back about my career and how I ended up where I am my initial interests were around feminist theory women's experiences life course transitions and I found that very sociologically interesting and then when I did my PhD I was interested in how higher education as an experience um, and a project of expansion, um, you know, these were kind of the end of the new labour years, everything was around higher education, widening participation, uh, women's success stories, it was everywhere, you know, how how was this experience that was becoming a much more massified and normalised life course transition for women, how was that reflecting back on things like family relationships with home and place um, and ideas about kind of projects of the self. So I almost feel like higher education was at that point not my focus, but then I became very, very interested in the neoliberalisation of higher education and then just the kind of spatial practices, the politics around whose experiences count, um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it sort of came in via the back door, I would say. So, I mean, you're, you're interested in student experiences of higher education, and there are lots of ways of looking at this, as you've pointed out. One theme you've particularly focused on is this idea of mobilities, which I think is really, really interesting. I mean, before we go on and talk about your own work about mobilities, can you just explain to the uninitiated what sociologists mean by mobilities? Yeah, I think it's a broad, it's used a lot in, the diff, in lots of different areas now, mobilities, and you've had the kind of mobilities turn. Um, which is where we started to think much more around not just about the rootedness of place, but the kind of roots between places. I certainly come from the kind of donnery tradition of the different kinds of mobility, so corporal mobility, virtual, communicative, imaginative, that kind of thing, the different ways and how the sort of systematic movement of peoples through migration or through education uh, or work, how that's kind of leading to different configurations of, say, family life or uh, working life. Um, so it's thinking about the movement of ideas, but also the kind of virtual mobilities, not just the physical mobilities. So thinking about how everyday life is structured by those processes, and they aren't just something that kind of exists over there, but they are structuring principles of contemporary life. And so how do those structuring principles play out in your own research with students' experiences of mobility in higher education? What I found troubling was, um, you know, just the binaries, really, you know, I found a lot of research around higher education student experiences as really kind of 
binary around you know, those who leave and those who stay, international students as being hypermobile, when actually what we know is that some international students, yes, of course, that's a, it's a fundamentally mobile experience, but then maybe don't have very complex mobilities, spatial mobilities once they're in, in situ at university, and maybe it's the virtual mobilities that becomes very central for them as they keep contact with home. And you know, universities are not bounded experiences in the way that if they ever were, um, you know, we know that they're cut across by all these other kinds of virtual and imagined mobilities. So how is it a structuring principle? So I think what what occurred to me was it was kind of overlooking lots of experience, like who counts as mobile? What counts as mobility? What is fixed? And so my research is around commuter students and a lot of the, you know, the different terms, stay at home, live at home, commuter, home students, non-mobile, immobile. And I've just felt like that really kind of did not resonate with the students that I had seen and supported prior to doing the research in my capacity as a higher education lecturer, where being, you know, those smaller scale mobilities were actually huge. You know, a part of managing, say, a part-time job, sharing a car with a friend or having to do a, a complex journey that even if you are still from say the northwest of England which is not a huge geographical area transport's terrible it's really complex going to Manchester may be completely disorientating even if you're only from 20 miles away so I felt like that we needed to think through what these mobilities mean for young people and students more broadly beyond the kind of binaries that we're given of this is a mobile student this this mobility counts and this, these mobilities don't count. And I think it was that kind of politics of representation around what is a mobile student. And even from what you've just said there, I can see how kind of issues of gender and class and race play out. I mean, what are you finding in terms of, as you say, these different kind of local mobilities and issues of class and, and, and gender in particular? Yeah, I think the whole notion, particularly in the UK, around the boarding school model of living away, of going into shared accommodation, which... For the women I, I interviewed for my PhD, many of those who were either working class or uh, black minority ethnic, they, they, the, the appeal of, of living away from home just wasn't there. It was not something they really wanted to do. But yet they were still mobile. They were still experiencing these big transitions, these big changes through going to university, through entering higher education. But these were kind of written out of the literature in higher education, which just kind of saw them as fixed, live at home, nothing really changes, no big transitions. And they were kind of represented in a discourse of lack and mm. of, you know, they, they would do it if they didn't have the barriers. And actually, that's not what I what, what I learned through the research, that these were active choices and these were still very transformative experiences. But the mobility was operating at a different scale um, and it was allowing them to maintain very important connections with family, with place, with employment, with all those kinds of things, with friends. Um, so I think it was about having a, having mobilities as the kind of central analytical concept and looking at the different scales of mobilities and how time and space and movement are connected for different students, particularly women and first generation or minority ethnic students, I think allowed for a much more whole picture of what a student experience is and how transformation occurs for different students. I mean, and this is all changing post-COVID and I think universities are finding yeah. out very quickly that a lot of students actually now no longer want to kind of move 300 miles away and, you know, as you say, live in live in this boarding school model. Now, you've mentioned John Uri and you've mentioned time and space and there's lots of different ways theoretically you can kind of cut this up. But I mean, who's been theoretically useful for you when asking these questions and, and doing this research? 
I think this is another reason why I'm kind of a reluctant higher education sociologist. I think a lot of people who are in that space are like Borgesians or Bernsteinians or whoever. And I'm always a little bit nervous. Perhaps that's my own imposter syndrome. But I think, yeah, definitely the mobility's turn, definitely uh, Mimi Scheller's work, the AD's work, but also Lefebvre's work around rhythm analysis has been really uh, important for me for thinking through, you know, what is higher education as a space? What is the space of higher education? They've got the kind of materiality of that space. You've got the kind of concept of what a higher education system or process is. And then you've got the kind of meanings and the lived everyday realities of that. And I think it's really important for thinking about time and space together at Lefebvre's work. Um, so that's been very kind of informative of how I of how I'm thinking through those issues, but also still very much kind of um, in that sort of relational sociology of David Morgan about the connections, the negotiations and the kind of ways in which lives emerge out of these uh, connections and, and, and ties rather than in spite of them or because of them. I think that's always been really important to me. So kind of bringing together different areas of geography and sociology. I'm, I'm not really one thing, I think. Well, that's the best way to be. And, and one of the things... That <laughs> well, I'll does, take that. <laughs> and one of the things that your work does is also bring kind of education concerns into kind of wider issues of culture, society, but also economy. And I was particularly interested in your, your, your current research on young women's experiences of work and experiences of work while studying. So, I mean, what are you finding about paid work and higher education study coming together? Well, we've only just really started. Um, but the work that I'm doing with Kim Allen at University of Leeds is around women's earliest experiences of working whilst learning. And, and often we, I think certainly in debates about graduate employability and graduate outcomes, we sort of have this image of a student as, as getting a job, like a first job. And we, we don't really pay much attention to the work that's done before that. And they already have lots of experiences. Well, most students, I think, and certainly those who are less privileged have experiences of work whilst they're learning. But I remember when it was actively discouraged that students would work to now where universities are actively encouraging students to do certain kinds of work not all kinds of work in order to make sure that when they do graduate they they are straight into graduate employment or some kind of employment which allows for good metrics so it's now in the university's interest to promote these more complex packed lives for students because the league table depends on it and the you know the metrics depend on it so I think what we wanted to do was really expose those earlier experiences work think about how those early experiences what is available to uh, uh, to women when they are working uh, sorry when they're learning and also working and how that forms ideas about what's possible what's meaningful uh, and and how that impacts on things like the gender pay gap later down the line other than say the motherhood penalty which we know has an impact but also there are other things going on so that's kind of what we're looking at we're not yet at a point where we can talk about data um, but a paper that Kim and I have just had out in the uh, European Journal of Cultural Studies, we looked at more kind of a discourse analysis of the side hustle, the student side hustle, which was pretty shocking, really, I think. Um, it was something that we'd started to look at during the pandemic. You know, during lockdowns, we would share memes with each other and we were very interested in the way selling from your phone, working from your phone was incredibly gendered. It was a real sort of address at women, you know, use your networks, capitalise on your friendships, make money, doing what you love, uh, whatever that is, whether it's makeup, baking bread, making jewellery or, mark, you know, like the kind of multi-level marketing, some of these more pernicious schemes. 
And then we started to look at how this kind of notion of hustles and hustle cultures and hacks and being savvy, all this kind of gendered language around women's entrepreneurialism was being used by institutions. And once we started to look, you've got everything from, you know, you kind of newer, newer institutions that are maybe more focused around a more diverse student body to more elite institutions, your Edinburgh's, your Oxford's, who are badging their um, support for these side hustles, whether that's through uh, sort of startup grants or um, accelerator loans or whatever it is that they do, often in collaboration with a bank, for example, Santander or or another body. And they are they're kind of using a language of equality, diversity and inclusion. Like They call things like power her up or yes, she did or, you know, really frightening <laughs> um, sort of washing of these initiatives that are pushing often women, black and minority ethnic women into particular kinds of work and badging it as entrepreneurialism, of hustling, when really what that's doing is it's just masking the problems and the crises in HE that we're seeing, uh, but also kind of still moving from that idea that this is a real liberalising um, go girl kind of experience of women are the poster girls of the kind of education revolution. And is this just a ham-fisted attempt by the university's marketing departments to try and appeal <laughs> to 2020 girls or, or or is it there's something more kind of un- deeply underlying about the kind of neoliberal entrepreneurial university here? I, I mean I don't I can't answer that definitively but I think it's I don't think it's just from marketing departments no I think it is you know these are really thought out schemes they're really embedded and as I say they're across the sector there's like a university side hustle awards this idea that there is a, a way to skip through, you know, to bypass the fact that you, you know, there's lots of debt, that the graduate employment market is increasingly uncertain and precarious, that there is a way through it that actually isn't systemic or, or structural. It's, it's something, it's really kind of hyper-individualising. And I think that that is coming directly from universities themselves. And rather than trying to deal with the problem head on it's trying to find ways around the problem and it doesn't serve students in my view and it, it kind of creates these narratives and it's really interesting what's omitted so there are some kinds of work which are never talked about for example illicit work yep. so sex work for That's women right. which we know students increasingly engage in and have done since the pandemic through things like only fans these you know there's a curious silence around those things and where are universities in terms of protecting students we know there's a well-being and a mental health crisis so yeah I just think it's a really Tim and I through our research we've seen it's the kind of pernicious rise of these discourses which are obviously not that but then sort of give rise to the kind of feeling that you should be doing more yourself to get yourself out of these um, tight spots or the precarity that the system is producing yeah the kind of self-responsibilization of risk hashtag girl boss uh, you mentioned there about working in your own. I mean, researchers that examine the dark side of university life, you're kind of in a double bind that you work within the systems that you're critiquing. I mean, what can academics like you or me do in our day-to-day work to address or alleviate these issues that your research points out so powerfully? I think we've just got to make trouble of it. It might not make us popular. Um, and we know we're all implicated in some way, but um, you know, this week it's the celebratory sharing of league table positions. And I think it's important just to push back and say, who is this serving? Um, you know, not using the master's tools, I guess, you know, thinking through some of our roles, you know, employability champion or, the, you know, what are we doing and, and how we can do these things, but we can do them with a healthy, critical eye and we can try and generate conversation that isn't alienating. And we know that increasingly our roles require us to do things which as sociologists 
we find troubling. But I think, you know, the university is ultimately a space for dialogue and for critical discussions. So I think it's important just to keep having them, even if <laughs> even if it makes you less popular. And I agree. I think actually just saying out loud what a lot of people are thinking um, is actually a very powerful thing to do through your own research. But I mean, um, is there anything just finally on the horizon that you're just beginning to think might be your next piece of work in five years time? Is there any issue that's just kind of bubbling under? Yeah. Um, I mean, sadly, I uh, had a grant rejection at Christmas, um, which is some work that I've been doing with uh, Mark Holton at Plymouth and uh, Joe Waters at UCL. Um, we've been working on it since 2019. So it's not just on the horizon. It's been a, a kind of a labour of love and of pain uh, for some years around the socio-spatial experiences of loneliness in higher education. Um, and this predated the pandemic. And Mark came to me with the idea originally and, and Joe, and we've been working on it. And we put together what we thought was a really good uh, application to the ESRC. And we got some great feedback, but ultimately we weren't successful. But we are really committed to that. Um, it's We're hearing constantly post-COVID around the kind of isolation, loneliness. I mean, we, we feel that loneliness often gets conflated with mental ill health or problem loneliness. And I suppose what we were trying to do with the project is thinking about loneliness as a much more mundane part of the kind of neoliberalisation of higher education, how it's productive of lonely moments and lonely students who, through things like balancing paid work and various other things, become lonely um and it's a lonely experience rather than you know an, an individualized psychologically framed mental health issue so i think that's where we were trying to go with that like creating a more kind of conceptual approach to loneliness that departs from a psychological concept and sadly i don't think that's going to go out of fashion so i'm sure you will get that funded which is a rather depressing Hopefully. note to finish on but um thanks <laughs> yeah. ever so much for taking the time kirsty you're i think your research is really really interesting more education researchers should take this approach and yeah good luck with it all thank you thanks